Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Good evening. You're listening to Bite Into It with Dan Salmon and Ro Murray. So, Mr. Dan, how's your week in tech been this week? My week in tech, Ro, has been remarkable, mainly because <laughs> I've not been hugely interacting with it, which means that there's been less opportunities for it to go down. But when it has been, uh, when I have been interacting <laughs> with tech, it's been going swimmingly. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you've got to go a bit lo-fi. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's 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 just best to you know when when, when you're feeling like it's gonna crack, just walk away from it. <laughs> I love it. It's probably a good ground rule for most things in yeah, life. Yeah, actually, like footpaths, the... roads. <laughs> Your, your, your family. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, my week in tech has been entertaining. Mm. I went and had an MRI oh. and I've never had one of those before. <laughs> Found out I've been walking on a slightly broken bone, but that's not the point. No, the tech is the point. It's 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 an interesting... I, I had an MRI last week as well, um, coincidentally enough, and it's fascinating that they can do this. And I mean, obviously, it's a technology that's been around for a while. It'd be great if it wasn't quite so claustrophobic when you went in there, but I suppose that's another... That's another the thing, but the the fact that we can see inside ourselves with magnets, I will never ever be uh, tired of knowing that information. Oh, it's slightly horrifying, but I was actually really impressed with, I guess, the communications around the process because mm. I got a text the afternoon of, that I had it saying, oh, you know, g'day, we've processed your results, whatever. Uh, if you want to, you know, click this link and download the app, mm. you can see your own stuff. So I'm like, very curious, always did the thing. And I've got everything. I've got the videos, I've got the photos, I've got everything neatly packed away in a little app. I can text it to people. I can save it to the cloud. I can do whatever. Check out my broken bone. Yeah. yeah cool. Well, I mean, I am the sort of person who had my whole skeleton's worth of extra done when I was about 18 after an accident and um, I had them all up around the house and someone stole my skull at a party That's, that I had there. I'll, I'll give it back, <laughs> whoever it was. Whoever's got my skull x-ray, <laughs> bring it back. Please, Rowe needs a skull It was back. probably 1994 or something, but bring it back. Absolutely. <laughs> well, look, I, I will say that your skull, I can evidence it is still here in the studio despite despite the fact that the it's x-ray was stolen. It's gone forever. <laughs> Too funny. Well, tonight we're going to be hearing from uh, Dan Golding. And if you love Untitled Goose Game, you've definitely listened to his sounds. He's going to give us an epic update on the state of the Aussie game scene. We're also going to have a chat to author and journalist Drew Rook. We're going to hear more about the new tech that is all about finding old shipwrecks. Fascinating. Spooky. Oh, that's going to be Down good in fun. The deep. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. But first, we want to kick off with a little bit of uh, news. And, yeah. And bef- before we go into the deep blue sea, we're yes. going up into the big blue sky. Best <laughs> <sea ever. laughs> I, I, I try. Look, if you didn't think that there were enough satellites up there, you know, creating light pollution and, and bouncing the internet around, the uh, never ending <laughs> tussle of overcompensation for whatever it is, uh, inadequacy as are between Jeff Bezos and <laughs> And uh, Elon Musk continues, Amazon this week have launched their new Project Kuiper test satellites. Now, what is Project Kuiper, I hear you ask? Project Kuiper is Amazon's attempt at a cloud-based satellite internet system, similar to what Elon has done with Starlink. Yes. And essentially they've, so, you know, if anything you can do, I can do exactly the same and get and charge more money for it. <laughs> uh, we've got... 
Bezos uh, and Amazon have put up two test satellites in the last week just to see how they're going, just to see if they work, uh, and then immediately uh, burn them back up on re-entry. So, you know, really good use of finite resources in yeah. sending up satellites for three days. Love it. It's looking like Amazon are plan well, at least they're planning to have a constellation of satellites for wireless internet up by the end of next year. Mm. So I guess um, we'll just have some more things to dodge when they eventually go to Mars and please don't ever come back. Yeah, so you know how Twitter's got that annoying feature where you'll be like reading a tweet and then it'll refresh itself and you lose the tweet that you're reading? Mm. I saw very briefly and I wanted to follow it up but I couldn't see it. So, hey, if anyone out there knows, send send the show a message. But, (laughs) yeah, someone was making commentary about the the light pollution with all of these new satellites and stuff going up is just going to be off its head. Mm. Well, I've seen some photos and if I can find them, I'll I'll, I'll, um, send them out on the socials. But of mm. the the, the first, one of the first launches of the Starlink constellation was just huge lines of satellites. We don't need it. We I mean, don't need it. No. I mean, Huff. anyway, let's let's not, let's not get too ranty because we've still got a, a good fifty minutes of the show to go. <laughs> Ro- Excellent, Ro. What's happening in uh, the world of genetics? Oh gosh, so. We've warned you. We warned you about this. But um, for anyone who's been spitting into a test tube and sending their gear off to 23andMe, basically the 23andMe have confirmed that a huge swag of their user data is now floating around on hacker forums on the dark web oh, and is for sale. Well done, yes. 23andMe. Yeah, so while they did you know, go ahead and do all the things they said they were going to do to maintain the integrity of the core database and all that kind of stuff. The same can't be said for their executives. So one of their senior executives who had full access was hacked, which then by default granted full access through and it was taken that way. So yeah, essentially a senior manager with access to all the gear was hacked. So are they contacting people who have provided that data? Or is it just a kind of like hand washing? Oh, look, sorry guys. But yeah, they put out an, oh, look, we're sorry kind of a statement, which yeah. seems to be you know, the more and more common way of companies to approach it. Certainly with the Optus hack, all of the press releases that I received was we believe it is more effective to tell the media and let the media do our job rather than us actually communicating directly with affected customers. Right, okay. So and it's a similar vibe here. Right. So if, if, if anyone out there has uh, sent their uh, stuff out to 23andMe, uh, it's possibly worth uh, checking that things are still working the way that they're meant to. Yes. And, mm. and who knows, you know, you might discover that one of your relatives was a 16th century vampire and someone's bought that information. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? What can only hope? <laughs> and, and speaking about who knows, um, Australia Post, bless them, we love them. The Australia Post brand has also been one of the most sort of Trojan horsey hacked brands that's been impacting Australians over the last couple of years. I think all of us will have been the recipient of dozens of rubbish texts that say, hi, it's Australia Post, your parcel is stuck with us, you need to pay us $1 or you need to click on this link in order to whatever, whatever. Mm. And it's caught heaps of people. Like Aussie Post as a brand is an absolute dragnet for online thievery. So... With October being Cyber Awareness Month, um, Australia Post is out and about encouraging their customers to download the free AusPost app. And it's very much around um, ahead of the crazy Christmas shopping season. Basically, the AusPost app is going to be the best way to get actual, accurate, trusted, legitimate delivery notifications that just protect your security. So the theory is get the app and just ignore, delete and block everything else that comes your way and you're going to be way better off from a hack risk. Absolutely. And it it is, you know, something that I've used myself. And it is actually, it's nice to have all the stuff in one spot and to know that it is coming directly from Australia Post via the app. Mm. So if 
if you are that way inclined, I would definitely consider doing it because no one needs to be uh, sent bloody texts saying it's Australia Post and worrying about it if it's if it's appearing mm. on the app as a notification. You know it's legit and you know that possibly you've got something delivered. Yeah. Mm. And the people, you know, that are spoofing Australia Post do a very, very good job of it. These are sophisticated mm. bunnies, a lot of them. So this is true. So, so, also some not yes. so sophisticated bunnies. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we digress. Spe- speaking of uh, the internet and moving things online, there's there's some interesting news out of the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service in the lead up to what is tipped by all accounts to be a pretty horrific uh, fire season this coming summer. The New South Wales National Park Service is looking to move their system to the cloud in terms of fire and incident management. So we've, we've obviously got a trend of this kind of stuff happening where um, government departments are moving their service division and incident management Mm -hmm. systems to cloud-based systems. By and large, it's a good thing. This one's out for tender at the moment. They're looking to have it launched by the end of next year by the looks of it. Um, And also they want all of the service to be hosted in Australia, which, you know, that's Mm -hmm. definitely a plus. We just need to be mindful, obviously, that in some instances where things are cloud-based, if you're out in the bush and you're fighting a fire and you don't have the internet, then you're not going to be able to connect to the system. So that's limitation one. Limitation two, obviously, is, uh, as we've talked about previously, cybersecurity. For those who may remember, Fire Rescue Victoria was hacked in April. April this mm. year, and a lot of a lot of data was uh, stolen from their databases. So as things progressively move in this direction, we just need to be, unfortunately, more hypervigilant than ever with that. The data that we're putting up there is either not so risky that if it gets compromised, it's yeah. going to be a problem, or if it is risky and needs to be put up there, make sure that it's properly protected. Oh, God. Feels a little bit never-ending. <laughs> it does. I know, and I think it's only going to get uh, more so. Yeah, well, I mean, AI is another little beastie that's going to get more so never-ending, and that is like travelling on an absolute freight train, watching that, you know, resolve. And for, for the tech heads among us, the people that, you know, either work in the field or work adjacent to it, who've got a pretty good handle on it, more power to you. But it's impacting, you know, your average punter who, you know, never had to code up their own MySpace profile and don't quite have the mad skills. So Google is now launching generative AI training resources on the Google Cloud. It's free Mm. and it's basically like a 45-minute intro. So it's called the Google Cloud Skills Boost Platform and it's called the Introduction to Generative AI. So you can literally Google it and find it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And you can do it in 45 minutes online, completely free. So it's basically, it was certainly tailored for app developers, machine learning engineers and data scientists to really give them a deep, deep handle on, you know, basically what is all about. There's generative AI fundamentals as well as introduction to responsible AI, but it's always worth that for anyone who's dabbling in everything from, you know, chat GPT or Otter AI, you know, the real basics, you know, right through to, you know, the various work generative ones and all that kind of stuff. It's worth knowing you're knitting when you're playing in the AI field or even if you're just a business owner absolutely, or a senior executive responsible for some business stuff, you need to be across this. So I mm. uh, recommend you go check it out. Just hope they don't use Bard when they're trying to re- recommend things because <laughs> we all know how great Bard worked out. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had a lovely little wrap of the news. So coming up next, uh, we plan on having a chat to Associate Professor Dan Golding to talk all about how darn awesome the Aussie video game vibes are. So it's going to be really, really good. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
So we wanted to have a right old yarn about, well, basically the fact that Australian video game music is just punching way above its weight. Absolutely. Very excited. So we're really thrilled to introduce our next guest. Byte listeners, you'll be familiar with him, Associate Professor Dan Golding. He's been a massive show regular here at Byte and created the soundtrack for like the BAFTA Dice and GDCA winning Untitled Goose Game, among many other things. And that soundtrack album was the first ever from a video game to be nominated for an ARIA Award. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be back. (laughs) Yay. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Pleasure. You know, video games are obviously a bit of a cultural activity for a lot of Australians and a huge platform which, you know, by way audiences are getting introduced to new music. I personally have been a score hound forever and now it's like game soundtracks. <laughs> Was this something you were hoping for back in the day? <laughs> yeah. You know, you have such an interesting and, and I want to say like um, almost intimate relationship with video game music because you, you spend so long playing these games, lounge rooms, in bedrooms and studies. And so, you know, the music kind of, uh, you, you, you form a very particular relationship with it. Um, I think that's quite different from film and TV, which can be a little bit more limited, I suppose, in, in terms of your time spent with it, I suppose. So, you know, I think it's kind of no surprise, really, to sit back and realise that, you know, there are so many people that just love this music like they really truly I think above and beyond a lot of other music that you see written for other media or even just music in general. I mean, I was lucky enough to attend the Orchestra Victoria. They did an indie symphony event recently where they performed independent video game music and there was a lot of Australian music as that. And like, you know, the audience was electric. It was the, the, the atmosphere in the room was above and beyond anything that I've seen for like, you know, I, I've been to many, many film soundtrack concerts, which are also enormously popular, but I'd say the audience was even more switched onto this stuff for games. Absolutely. And and so, Dan, I guess it's, it's one of those things where it's grown over time, because if you think about the old school, you know, 8-bit kind of, you know, Mario kind of mm. sound, the, the earworms that are still in your head 40 years later kind of thing, and now yeah. it's developed through decades to the point where we've got stuff like Stray Gods, where you've got, you know, these unbelievably yeah. elaborate compositions that are being put up on stage. Is this something, like, are we at the pinnacle now or or can you see it going further and in other different directions? So video game music has actually got a really interesting history because the big changes have also coincided with big changes in the music industry. So when video games started to shift from that chiptune stuff that you're talking about, where the music is made essentially live on the fly by the programming, by the music chip in the console, your classic Super Mario's, Tetris, you know, all that kind of stuff that, that we, we know and love. When that shifted to the ability for games to play pre-recorded music, you know, audio files of live performance rather than a console creating the music on the fly. That happens in about the late 90s and what also happens in around the late 90s is the music industry starts to get really worried about music piracy mm. and uh, things like Napster and that sort of happens, right? And then 
shortly after video game music starts developing and we start getting, you know, the first really big, you know, um, orchestral scores, recording um, soundtracks, you start to get, I mean, interesting things happening in Australia around that time as well, like the Bamboos did a great soundtrack for a video game made here in Melbourne called The Blob. But, you know, around this time in the early 2000s, that's when we're starting to get the, the, the very early digital download era, MP3 players, you know, and then eventually streaming. So actually... I think video game music has still got a little ways to go because what we've seen is these massive technological changes that have gone hand in hand with kind of massive music industry changes. And so kind of there's really been only over the last, let's say, five or ten years where both both worlds have been relatively stable and we've started to see, yeah, these massive um, innovations. You mentioned Stray God. I really am so excited to see where things go over the next decade because, you know, finally I think people won't have to worry so much about big tectonic shifts around them. <laughs> <laughs> so, but before we jump into the future, though, Dan, let's, let's, let's mm. talk briefly about the present. Um, yeah. You have just co-authored the Australian Music and Games 2023 Benchmark. Mm. What... For those who haven't heard of it before, what is the Music and Games 2023 benchmark? Yeah, so basically Creative Australia, or as they were known as the start of this project, the Australia Council for the Arts, they basically um, put out a, a call um, saying this is research that needs to be done, which I think was, was incredibly kind of showed that they, they're actually, you know, like government agencies aren't necessarily always particularly on the cutting edge, but they <laughs> knew that not to, not to talk down to government agencies, but, you know, they really identified that both video games and music, you know, kind of overlapped in a really interesting way and that we kind of needed to know what was going on here. We know a lot about the music industry in Australia. We know a lot about the games industry in Australia, but what happens when we combine the two? And so myself, I'm at Swinburne University, um, a colleague at QUT, um, Dr. Brennan Keogh, who I think has also been on Byte a few times before. Yep, definitely um, a friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And soon to be Dr. Taylor Hardwick, uh, who is sort of at, at Swinburne, uh, just submitted her PhD. She oh, worked on the project. Congratulations. Taylor. <laughs> yeah, Taylor's done some great research. We uh, did a survey. It was a, a large-scale survey, so we had uh, about 90 people working in games music filled that out, answering all sorts of questions about uh, how much money they make, how many projects they kind of have worked on, what skills they need, what technology they use, and kind of how rights work. Do they release the soundtrack uh, at the end of all of this? Does it get released at all? Um, um, all sorts of, well, I think, fascinating questions around that kind of stuff. And we also did a bunch of interviews, about 20 interviews in total, with both game developers and composers to kind of get a bit more of a you know, granular understanding of what was going on. And at the end of all of this, we've tallied it all up, made some you know, great charts, as you do with a report, <laughs> um, and pulled it together uh, in a document which is now available um, on the Creative Australia website. But there are some kind of key takeaways, some recommendations, um, but also like, yeah, some really fascinating and interesting, surprising things about what's going on in Australian video game music. Awesome. Well, we will tweet out um, a link to a copy of the study on our Bite Into It Twitter account. And I actually had on my little list of questions, what surprised you? So I'd love yeah. to get a bit of a rundown on the, those little, oh, well, okay yeah. then moments. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so I think one of the things that really surprised me is that actually Australian video game composers are, and I almost don't want to say this 
too loudly. <laughs> we might spell the end of this, but they're getting a pretty good deal when it comes to um, things like retaining rights. So if you're, so for example, if you write a soundtrack for a TV series in Australia, most likely, or or a film. Say you're writing a, a soundtrack for a, one of the big streaming companies. Most likely, what's going to happen is they're going to offer you a contract where you sign away your rights to the vast majority of everything. You, you say, okay, streaming company X, you now own all my music and you, you know, possibly even get my royalties or a, a split of the royalties from things like radio play, uh, things like streaming services and stuff like that, to the degree where sometimes actually a lot of soundtracks for smaller productions aren't ever released because the kind of rights end up with the streaming company, which basically then goes, well, mm. it's not really worth our time to, to release this. So, which is a real pity the music just kind of sits there. So that doesn't really happen in Australia for video game music, which is kind of amazing and great. And we want to preserve that mm. <laughs> as best as we can because of the nature of Australia's video game industry, which is much more independently minded. We don't have too many big international companies in Australia, which can be a downside in some respects, but in this one specific respect, it means that actually composers are largely working with smaller companies who, you know, they don't want to enter the world of music publishing. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, what, what would a company of, of five people making a, making a you know, a big international video game, but nonetheless just five people in a room, what would they want to do with music publishing rights? So it means that composers kind of retain that great condition, which is, which is really good. But it also means that we see a lot of the time, like, composers feeling like they're genuinely a creative partner on the project. Mm. Um, they feel really valued and like they're able to kind of do something really exciting and interesting as part of their work rather than just sort of being, you know, a contractor or a work for hire, um, someone who comes in at the last minute and gets a, gets a brief and, you know, kind of has to work with that. So I think that's that's really exciting and really interesting. Also, just particularly in light of all of the enormous strikes that we're seeing in the USA yeah. at the moment and all of those, you know, debates around, well, what is happening with rights, streaming, royalties, all that kind of stuff, I've bodes incredibly well for Australian creatives. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And look, you know, I mean, I suppose this, uh, this is why I said I almost don't want to say it out loud, because there's <laughs> always the risk that, you know, as the international publishers sort of realise that there's some pretty amazing work going on here, I suppose, there's always the risk that they'll bring their kind of international norms with them and, the, you know, the standard contract that they say, well, this is this is, this is is it, like it or lump it. It's possible that that will change, but, you know, like I think we've got to... You know, there are mechanisms and there are bodies, I think, that are interested in fighting to preserve, you know, some, some pretty good independent working conditions in Australia, which is really nice. Yeah, awesome. Are the workers largely freelance or is it more of an employee yeah. type thing? No, so they are largely freelance. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another thing that we found is that very few people um, work in game music full-time. Mm. So even if they're freelance, they're probably doing other things on the side, which is actually really common to the music industry. Most music workers in Australia mm. work in what people call portfolio careers, where, you know, maybe you're the front person of a band playing guitar at shows on the weekends, but, you know, then, you know, on Monday you, you turn up to work and, and do something maybe in the music industry. I don't know, maybe you're running social media for a music label or, I don't know, doing reviews or 
uh, doing front of house for a music venue or something like that, but you assemble kind of multiple things to your portfolio. And so that's kind of what happens in games. We do interestingly see that actually if you make above the minimum wage from game music, then you actually make quite a lot more than your average musician does in Australia, which is, which is you know, again, like another little positive story. There's still a lot of unpaid work, as I guess you would expect there to be, for an industry where there's a lot of hobbyists, uh, a lot of kind of independent amateurs looking to break in. Um, yeah, and do- actually, doing it for the passion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I guess the message is, is that for those people who do manage to kind of find some work and stability, actually the story is pretty good, which might sound kind of like a a silver lining to a bad situation, but actually for the creative industries, it's not too bad. Hmm. Well, that's really awesome. It it definitely sounds like from you know having had had a look at you know the the study itself and everything, we mm. we seem to be you know punching really well above our weight in the global uh, sphere. I guess both from quality as well as essentially workers' rights or workers' compensation, that kind of thing. What are some of the really awesome games that are sort of settling that reputation in? Well, I mean, Cold of the Lamb, for example, recent release, a relatively recent release, took over. Fed Square. I was walking out out of an uh, an event um, (laughs) last week and walked out and saw Narayan, who's the composer of that game, Narayan Johnson, leading a kind of cult rave uh, into the night. Like he he was seriously in like robes on top of like a DJ desk with smoke and lights surrounded by literally hundreds of people in Federation Square who, like, i got to say it was a bit weird because none of them were really dancing, even though it was very danceable rave music. They were just kind of standing transfixed <laughs> at what was happening. But that, that's got a great soundtrack. Yeah, Narayan, Narayan's actually, you know, like a really interesting case study as there is, uh, I think, a kind of a common story in Australian game music is that he has a background as a kind of non-games music artist. Mm. He was half of the band Willow Beats and, you know, made some pretty cool music and then kind of moved sideways into, into games. And we see that like a little bit. Tim Shield uh, has done yep. um, some, some great soundtracks for like Gardens in Between and uh, Duet, uh, which I think is getting a 10-year uh, anniversary re-release coming up. Some really nice um, nice work from him. And of course, you know, he's not, again, he's uh, <laughs> juggling multiple roles in the music industry, not just as uh, a video game composer. So yeah, and of course, Stray Gods. For anybody who's listening who doesn't know what Stray Gods is, it's a role-playing musical, which is basically... You know, all you need to know from that title is they've invented an entire new genre of video game. Um, wow. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, it's it's got these incredible songs that you make choices midway through the song and the entire song just changes. And it's kind of one of those games you don't realise until you've finished the game and you go back and you listen to the soundtrack, which, by the way, there are four versions of the main soundtrack. <laughs> um, but just how much music and how much impact your choices have had on the music in the game it's really spectacular mm. oh that's brilliant <laughs> yeah no we had the guys from Stray Gods on a few weeks ago and the amount of oh, effort, effort that has gone into the composition and the thinking that has gone into it just blew my mind absolutely yeah. blew my mind yeah completely yeah. huge well Dan thank you so much for joining us completely appreciate it 
Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Um, so we've just been having a chat to Associate Professor Dan Golding from Swinburne. He's obviously been a great friend of the Bite Into It show for a really long time. He's the Deputy Chair of the Department of Media and Communications. We've been chatting about the Australian Music and Games 2023 Benchmark Report. Uh, we will pop that out on our Twitter later tonight if you want to check it out. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Well, we're going to turn into little pirates for, for, the next, <laughs> for the next segment and we're really excited to have a chat to Drew Rook, who's a journalist and author who writes regularly for Cosmos magazine and his most recent book is A Witness of Fact, the peculiar case of Chief Forensic Pathologist Colin Mannock, which is published by Scribevire. We were interested in having a chat to Drew about shipwrecks. I'm excited. Yeah, so let's get the pirates going. Drew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, essentially, you've investigated this really fabulous project that's being led by Dr James Hunter, who's the Curator of Naval Heritage and Archaeology at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Tell us all about it. How did you cross paths with this story in the first place? So, I crossed paths with James through another story that he had been involved in with Cosmos, and he told us about this fascinating shipwreck off the coast of South Australia, off a small town called Robe, which was a Dutch ship called the Conning Willem de Tweed. Now, this ship set sail from Hong Kong in early June 1857, and on board were around 400 Chinese migrants who were coming to Australia to search for gold, as so many of their compatriots were doing at, at that time. And Robe was a town that was considered better to dock at for ship owners because it didn't have a docking tax, whereas docks in Victoria did. So this was just near the Victorian border. And the gold diggers disembarked safely and made their overland trek to the Victorian goldfields. But the ship and its crew got stuck in the bay that Robe is on due to inclement weather. And then the weather worsened and the ship ultimately wrecked after the captain tried to save it by intentionally grounding it to prevent it from the heavy swell. He grounded it, but then the heavy the heavy waves and, and wind ultimately tore the ship apart Gosh. and it's remained submerged ever since. Absolutely unreal. So I guess, we, you know, because we're a tech show, we were really interested in, you know, today, 2023, these teams are out and they're learning new things, they're finding new things and investigating. What's sort of the process they're going through and the tech they're using to locate and study these wrecks? Yeah, sure. The process, I guess, starts with communicating and coordinating with the local community. But once they're on the ground is when the kind of tech comes in. So they start by doing kind of sonar mapping from from a boat sort of above where they believe the shipwreck is located, which James Hunter and, and his team did as one of the early steps in, in the process. And they also ran a magnetometer survey over the shipwreck site. And the magnetometer survey detects um, heavy concentrations of, of any metals that might be um, under the water. And they got a large strike um, on their magnetometer survey of a large concentration of, of metal where they believed the site to be. And right. also in their toolkit, they use 3D photogrammetry 
which kind of comes a bit further down further down the line in the process and that's basically building a 3d model using uh, photographs of the site and if it's done properly it builds a, a, a very very accurate kind of 3d photorealistic model of, of the shipwreck it's a really fantastic little piece of tech and I would imagine the 3D photogrammetry in particular would be possibly be able to be used to map, I guess, larger areas of the ocean bed because obviously the ocean is one of those things that's still greatly unexplored and obviously changes a bit now and then. Does it have, you know, further reach than um, yeah, these yeah. projects? It, it does, it does. And, you know, James told me that the technology has been kind of in his toolkit since around 2010 and since then it's been a real game changer that's utilised in a whole range of research, marine archaeology related around the world by teams from very, very, a number of museums. That's amazing. So, so Drew, if, if we're now at the point where we can do very realistic 3D mapping of ships that have been wrecked, you, you, you hear sometimes arguments, and, and I'm thinking, you know, particularly in recent months with the whole Titanic submersible thing that happened, people are starting to argue, like, do we really need to go down there anymore? Do you think that we're going to be moving in that direction where, like, the need to actually, you know, get your scuba gear on and go down and check out the wreck is going to be negated? Or will there always be a need for that, do you think? I think there'll always be a need for it. I think safety of, of crew is also kind of an important component. And, you know, when you're dealing with shipwrecks that are, you know, hundreds of metres below the surface, that obviously presents greater challenges for <laughs> Ooh, humans yeah. going down there. And, you know, they, you know, J- James, for instance, has been in, involved in a, in a number of shipwrecks that have been at depth and they will use submersible vessels to, to go down. But I think, you know, the looking, looking at the wreck through one's own eyes is always going to complement any insight that technology may be able to offer. So I think it's always going to remain somewhat of a sort of relationship between man and machine in, in the process of investigating these wrecks. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I definitely imagine that the research team would certainly be getting their paddy um, logbook hours up, you know, underwater. <laughs> um, have you gone down on one of the dives or have you been tempted to? No, I haven't, actually. I unfortunately didn't tag along on the research trip, so I was I was hearing it from James, who was recounting the journey to me, although he does have a plan to go back to Robe in the coming months to continue the investigation because the last couple of times they have been there, the weather has just been atrocious. To you know, it, to, to give you an idea of where it is, it's facing southwest, so it's just exposed to all of the storms and, and swells that come up from the Southern Ocean and Antarctica. Um, and around the summer months is, is when it's believed that the weather is best, although that's been thrown out um, <laughs> of the window a little bit in recent years. Yeah, it would be fantastic to tag along on the next trip that they make there. Oh, absolutely. We really hope you get the opportunity to do that. It sounds really interesting and it sounds like there's a heck of a lot more to be uncovered there, Drew. So thank you so much for joining us this evening. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking to Drew Rook, who's a writer and journalist and author of the A Witness of Fact, <laughs> The Peculiar Case of Chief Forensic Pathologist Colin Manick, which uh, is out on Scribe at the moment. And also, I'm just going to shout out that Dan is almost a walking carcass. He's an absolute <laughs> legend for coming in and help, helping me put the show to air tonight. So uh, look, please forgive a few snuffles and grumbles from the corner. Oh, look, a, a, a little bug isn't going to stop me from chatting to you, Ro. Absolutely not. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. 
If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Bit of, bit of fun and interesting and weird news of the week. If you thought the Australian criminals were uh, interesting in their laundering of money, they've got nothing on Swedes. So <laughs> it, it, it turns out that uh, Spotify is uh, helping Swedish gangsters launder their money using fake plays for artists that are in on the act. So I... I I don't know. I don't know how you could possibly make that any cooler. But obviously, cr- crime is bad, and you shouldn't do it. But if you are going to launder your money, um, <laughs> it may, maybe you know start yourself a streaming service, and uh, that way you can profit nefariously that way. I love it. I mean, look, you've got to give the crooms their due. Yeah. If anyone's going to innovate when it, where money can be made, it's it's going to be the underworld, and I'm here for it. Absolutely. Now, speaking of being here for it, it's your Christmas, isn't <laughs> it? It Ro? is my Christmas <laughs> today, today. Fat Bear Week came to its magnificent conclusion, and there is a winner <sighs> now. For those of you listening at home who don't know what Fat Bear Week, it's um, Katmai National Park, the Brooks River, the grizzly bears. They get really, really fat on the sockeye salmon before they go into hibernation. So fat that their butts get stuck on rocks and all sorts of things and they fall fall over. They're circular. So it's basically an online tournament. Had over a million participants last year. Don't know how many this year. It gets bigger every year. Yeah, and it's like a a tournament style. You just get online, you vote every day for your favourite fattest bear it's photo comparison and off you go. And I'm proud to announce that Grazer, who is a female and she's basically this year, no cubs, no worries, all the fat, she's taken out the crown. I'm very excited. Congratulations to Grazer. Ro, the look on your face is pure joy. Every year when Fat Bear Week comes around, <laughs> I've just the, your happiness makes me happy. Hey, it's been a great show this week. Thank you so much to our guests, Dan Golding from Swinburne University of Technology, Drew Rook from Cosmos, from Cosmos Magazine, Magazine yes. jo- joining Woo. us. It's been great fun. Thank you to Lulin, uh, our uh, producer, talks producer, and uh, vote yes. Vote yes. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.